morning. What a privilege it is for me to be with you here today. My name is Jim Connor, and I serve as your executive pastor. And after 35 years serving as a pastor in local churches, this is a new position, a new title for me, and I look forward to growing into it. Friends have suggested other titles that I might go by. One friend suggested the acronym TOPOS, T-O-P-O-S, which stands for the old pastor on staff. I came up with uh, the ex-pastor, but the more I thought about it, uh, I didn't want to have ex-pastor become a self-fulfilling prophecy. (laughs) Would you pray with me? Let now the words from my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Legend has it that uh, writer Ernest Hemingway uh, was bet by some friends when they were gathering together at an eating and drinking establishment that he couldn't come up with a short story in 10 words or less. So the money was collected and Hemingway jotted some words down on a napkin, passed it around and collected the money. He did it in six words and these were his six words. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. We hear those words and already our hearts start to break thinking about the circumstances that would elicit those kinds of words being shared. I heard this story as told by a pastor friend of mine who was conducting a memorial service for a colleague who had just lost her her baby boy. And in the midst of the incredible grief that filled the sanctuary, he shared with all of us gathered that in situations like these, in, in tragedies like this one, that the first heart to break is always God's. And then he asked us to attach ourselves to six other words, six different words, words that perhaps many of us learned to sing or perhaps they were words that were sung to us. And those six words were, Jesus loves me, this I know. From that point on, I've been kind of fixated a little bit with with six words and trying to come up with six words to help describe what it is that I believe, six words that are are important to, to me in my faith journey. And I likewise have wanted others to do so. I think it's important for us to be able to to name what it is we believe and why we believe it. And I think it's important for us to do it succinctly. I've challenged seminary students uh, to come up with their own six words that that make a difference. Six words from scripture that that really speak to them. And every time I I, I look at them, I I chaired the Board of Ordained Ministry. And I guess when you do that, people are a little worried about whether you're going to pass them or not. But... But when we ask someone to come up with their six words, it's a little scary. But there's a reason I do it. I do it because I think it's important uh, for those of us who are in ministry to recognize that far too often we say much more than we need to. And we learn to be a little bit more succinct. And, and I'm going to test that just this morning. How many of you have ever heard a six-word sermon? Would you raise your hand? Yeah, this is not one either. But I I do want you to think about what it is that you believe. And I'm going to share a little bit about what I believe and and how I've come to believe it. This sermon uh, is really an addendum to to the Legacy series. Uh, It's taken from the 11th and 12th chapter of Hebrews. And we remember the the word legacy means the, the mark we leave on others. Chapter 11 of Hebrews starts with the classic Bible definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, Promise of things not seen. And for those playing at home, the the words will be appearing on the screens in six-word phrases. 
but I digress. Chapter 11 continues with a, a list of the who's who in the Bible Testament of the faithful. We're given their stories, or some of their stories, and they're provided in order to give hope uh, to the, the folks to whom they're written who have been persecuted and are struggling. They're given as a hope also to us to, to be able to look at those who persevered and were able to, to make it through. They were faithful figures, but they weren't perfect. They were much like you and I. They made mistakes. And sometimes uh, when they did, things got ugly. But another part of this passage is that even when they were faithful, even when they did all the right things, sometimes things were difficult as well. It's a reminder that prosperity and blessings don't come just because we're faithful. It's, not, it's a reality that, that being obedient doesn't always mean that things will go the way that we want them to go but we're encouraged to find comfort in the knowledge that others have persevered and prevailed. And likewise, we should be comforted in knowing that, that we all have this great cloud of witnesses, those who've gone on before us, who continue to encourage us, to pray for us, to, to be with us, cheering us on so that we might run this race faithfully. And now it becomes our turn. The passage ends with a call for us. Run the race set before us. At the 815 service, uh, Caesar was here with me, and so I got to tell a Chicago Bears story just in his honor, but the story goes that Matt Suey, a fullback for the Chicago Bears back in the, the 80s, was on an Alaskan hunting trip with Walter Payton. Now, for those of you who don't know Walter Payton, he wanted to be like Emmett Smith, but just couldn't get enough yards. But he was really, really, really good. On this Alaskan hunting trip, uh, Suey was awakened as, and found out that Peyton was quickly putting on his running shoes, and he turned and said, Walter, what's, what's up? What's up? He said, I hear a bear, a real bear, outside the tent. And Suey looked at Peyton and said, Walter, you can't outrun a bear. And Walter looked back at him and said, I don't need to. All I need to outrun is you. <laughs> running is a familiar theme in the Bible. From the very beginning, we have Adam and Eve running out of the garden. We have uh, Moses and the children of Israel running away from Pharaoh. We have uh, the stories of Jacob running from Elijah, and, or Jacob running from Esau, Elijah running from Jezebel. We've got Jonah running from the call of God to go to Nineveh. One after the other, there's stories of people on the run. But we have our own stories, don't we? Where is it that you've been doing your running? Where are you running to? Who are you running from? Or perhaps you've been more like me, that you've just been stuck. You kind of feel like you're running in the sand. The good news is that no matter where you are on that journey, we have that great cloud of witnesses encouraging us to keep taking one step at a time and moving forward. The series on legacy had me thinking about uh, two individuals in my life who, who left an indelible mark, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about them this morning. Uh, the first would be my father. You're about to see a picture of my family. I'm the cute one there on the front right. Uh, I think that was about 160 pounds ago. I don't know. Uh, my oldest brothers, Mark and John, Mark, John, and James, three wonderful biblical names. My, my dad was a preacher. My mom was a teacher. Mom always said that those who can teach and those who can't preach. <laughs> and I became a pastor. My dad was a preacher and my dad was my hero. 
Uh, my dad uh, was the oldest of three sons, and literally their names were Tom, Dick, and Harry. <laughs> and my father was the oldest. He was 13, and when my grandfather left home, he abandoned my grandmother and my dad and his two brothers, and my dad was there to help my grandmother carry, care for his seven- and five-year-old younger brothers. My dad, my grandmother waited tables in Chicago, and, and my dad took on a, a newspaper route to, to help support the family. When he was 18, he joined the Army Air Force and served in Panama, all the while sending his, his checks back home to support the family. When my dad got out of the service, he, he went back home and he joined the, the Chicago City News Bureau, where he was a beat reporter. And it was there that he witnessed a great deal of, of pain and injustice and he decided he wanted to do something about it. He wanted to, to change the systems. And then my dad decided to go to seminary and followed the call in the ministry. My dad was colorblind, both in the worst way and the best way. In the worst way, my dad couldn't match clothes to save his life. And if my mom didn't lay out his clothes, it was a fashion disaster one time after the other. But in the best way, my dad never really recognized the color of someone's skin. He could always look beyond outward appearances and looked in the eyes and looked in the heart. My father believed we were all God's children, no matter our color, our size, our shape, our belief. And my dad said, since we were all God's children, everyone is worthy of our respect and our love. My father had his own six words that he lived by. And they were the words that answered the, the question that Micah is posing, what is it that the Lord requires of us? And the answer, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. And that's how my father lived. It has been 30 some years since I wrote my affirmation of faith that was part of my seminary and ordination process. But I thought it would be appropriate to, to rewrite it a little bit and share with you what it is I believe now. Again, encouraging all of us to think about what it is we believe so we might share those things with others. And so it may come as a big surprise, and hopefully not, but I believe in God. I always have, for as long as I can remember. I believe we're all children of God, and I believe that we're all made in God's image, as wonderfully diverse as we are. I do not believe that God causes us hardship. I know that, that some believe that sometimes we are tested and we have trials put before us, but I believe God is there for us in the midst of those, but I don't believe that God causes those. And I truly believe, as Romans 8 says, that all things work for good for those who love the Lord. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God. And and what is even more important to me in that wonderful eighth chapter of Romans is the way that it finishes, which it finishes by saying there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. And, and for the record, those are my six words. Nothing separates us from God's love. I believe God is still creating. I believe God is still very much at work in our lives and in the lives of those around us. God is engaged and present everywhere, God's not done with us yet. We used to describe God in seminaries as being the omnis, and I still believe that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. God is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and omnipresent everywhere. But I also believe that God has blessed us all with, with the gift of free will, and as such, I don't believe God knows the future. 
I believe God could control the future, but I believe that that gift of free will means that you and I are partners with God in making this world a better place, in sharing love and in bringing healing and advocating for those who can't speak for themselves. And so we have a lot of work to do. Most of all, though, no matter what any of us believe about God, I know that God believes in us. One Sunday, a pastor was giving a children's sermon, wanted to talk to the children and have them identify something he was describing. And so he was describing an animal. He said, now this thing lives in trees and, and it eats nuts. And none of the kids knew what it was. And he continued by saying, it's gray, it has a long bushy tail. And, and still the kids didn't know what it was. Finally, he said, he said it, it jumps from branch to branch and, and it flips its tail when it's excited. And, and finally, little Johnny raised his hand and said, was called out by the pastor who was so relieved and said, Johnny, tell us all what it is. He said, well, I know the answer must be Jesus, but it sure, sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> the answer is Jesus, but that's only four words, but they're good ones. I've heard many folks choose as their six words, the words from the beginning of John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. A verse that, that many of us memorize and, and hold on to as, as, as kind of the center of our faith. But I want you, the next time that you use that as a verse in conversation, to also add John 3, 17 onto it. Because John 3, 17 says that God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We live in a world where there's a whole lot of condemnation going on, and I think what people need to recognize is that Jesus was sent not to condemn, but to save. I believe Jesus is our Savior, but I don't believe it's what we've done. I believe it's what God has done through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for us that puts us in a right relationship with God and with the world. I believe that Jesus, as our scripture for this morning says, was the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He was a teacher, a healer, a miracle worker. What I loved about Jesus is that he was, a, he was an advocate for social justice and change. Jesus was not content to just say things and have people change their minds. Jesus was willing to toss tables. And the, and the place that he did it was a place where the high and mighty, the religious were, the folks who thought they had their lives together. And he said, no, this is not the way we do things. And this is not the way that we care for each other. I believe that Jesus not only re reveals to us who God is, Jesus reveals to us who we at our best can be. All along, my understanding of the Holy Spirit has been the hardest for me to put into words, but I think I, I just have come up with a way to do it that makes the most sense. We hear biblical images of the, the Spirit as the dove, as, as fire, as a breath. My biblical image of the Holy Spirit that I hold on to now is taken from the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus is sharing with the disciples that he's going to be leaving with them, but God is going to send the advocate, the Holy Spirit, to them. I like that word advocate, but even more I like the, the, the word comforter, which is in some translations what's used. Last fall, my wife of almost 28 years died. And two years before she died, some ladies in the church had, had made for her a quilt. And I remember my wife wrapping herself in the quilt to, to feel warmth, 
to feel secure. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's what a comforter is all about. And so I, I found great, great comfort in knowing that, that she was comforted by that, that gift from members of the church. Bless those quilting ladies at Genesis and bless those quilting ladies wherever they are who give those kinds of gifts to remind us that we never need to be cold or feel alone, that we always can be wrapped in something that, that's made with love and reminds us that God is with us. I've used that quote myself in the last year to, to remind me that I'm not alone. Well, since I've started talking about her, I probably should, should be a little more specific. So I want to give you a picture of her. That was my lovely wife, Lori. And that was 48 pounds ago, as we're keeping, <laughs> as we're keeping honesty going here. I'm married so far higher than I could ever have hoped to. In so many ways, Lori was perfect. She was beautiful. She was intelligent. She was energized to be with people. She was humble. She was, she was thoughtful. And most of all, she had a love for God and a love for, for humanity like none I had ever seen in another and like none I will probably ever see in another. The Holy Spirit was active in her life and it was contagious. Our dating lives weren't perfect. We dated for eight months and two quick stories. Uh, I believe it was our second date. We went out dancing. Uh, by the way, there's a square dance this Friday night for Boomers and Beyond. But <laughs> at that particular dance, um, Lori and I were, went on a dance floor. We were the only ones on the dance floor and I was trying to show off. I was a disco dancer in high school. Please don't hold that against me. But as I was spinning her trying to do the pretzel bump, Lori's elbow caught me in the chin and I literally went down on the floor. It left an indelible mark on my chin and in my heart. Lori and I were engaged on April 1st, 1987. That's right, April Fool's Day. I planned an elaborate, uh, just planned to, to have her ride with me and to meet uh, in a place that was a chapel where I wanted us to get married. But lo and behold, Lori got a little sick that evening. And before we were able to even get to our destination, she asked me to pull over and she got out of the car and she threw up all over a tree. <laughs> Not quite the way I planned it. <laughs> but truth be told, she even did that gracefully. Lori was an all-American swimmer. And while she couldn't walk on water, no one I'd ever met could glide across it the way she could. She worked as a teacher. Um, she worked as a human resources head at an insurance company, and she later served in ministry at the United Methodist General Board of Pensions as a pension administrator. It was after our second son, Zach, was born in 1993 that she had blurred vision and dizziness, which didn't go away, and a brain tumor was found. And so two 12-hour surgeries later, she was left virtually paralyzed on the right side of her body much like a stroke victim, and on the left side of her body, she had no feeling in her face. My family and those who know me well know how competitive I am, but I couldn't hold a candle to the competitive nature that Lori picked up and the courage and grace she showed in getting stronger and doing everything she could to be able to have the, the semblance of a normal life that, that she really wanted and we needed her to have. You remember all this happened when Lori had two boys ages four months and just under three years 
and then a bigger boy, age 34. We struggled, but Lori never complained. Lori never questioned why this was happening to her. Lori continued to live with a strong faith. She read her Bible each day. It was the Easter following the surgeries when Lori was um, kidnapped out of the hospital by my family. There was a pass I could get, but they brought Lori to the sanctuary for Easter Sunday services. And Lori walked down that center aisle in her walker. And as she made her way down that row, silence filled the sanctuary. And there wasn't a dry eye on the house especially mine. I was sitting behind the pulpit in a chair, crying my eyes out and thinking to myself, it didn't matter what I was going to say the rest of the morning because we had already received our Easter message. God was good and still very capable of bringing hope out of despair, bringing joy out of sadness, and in giving new life to those who would receive it. For the next 20 years, Lori did all that she could to, to stay as healthy as possible. And the good news is she lived long enough to see our oldest son graduated from college. And our youngest son was just one year short of it when she died. I wasn't able to say too much at her memorial service. And frankly, it's even difficult now to, to say a, a whole lot. But there was one thing I did say. At the end of the service, after thanking people for being there, I, I asked if there was anyone there who, who didn't have a church home. Probably kind of a weird question to ask at a funeral service, even for a pastor. But the reason I asked it was because I recognized how important that was for me. I'm here today because the good folks at Genesis United Methodist Church cared for my family. They cared for me in a way that gave me the, the ability to carry on. They were my cloud of witnesses, just as they had been for Lori in the last years of her life. And so, dear friends, if you are here this morning and you do not have a church home, I want you to find one. I'd love it for it to be this one. I've been here for 31 days, and I can already tell you what an incredible church family this is to be part of. I spent my 31 days here working with staff and getting to know the ministries that they're a part of. And, and there's two things that are very, very clear. The staff here has great joy and love for what they're doing, and I'm so grateful for that. And equally important, they are so impressed by the joy and love you have in being in ministry with them. What a great church family to be a part of. And it's a church family that understands the importance of being in mission. Uh, as I told you about my father, uh, the same holds true for me. I believe very much that we are called to, to be in mission ministry together. And if you haven't found a, a place to plug in, uh, let me tell you a little bit about what I learned from Susan Luttrell and Teresa Sherwood in a matter of two hours. Those were the longest two hours I've ever spent in my life because there was no way I could possibly have taken in all that was going on. Susan, t they went by very quickly actually, but Susan told me that, that, that she has over 2,700 volunteers in ministry and, they, and they're caring for over 5,400 people. Uh, Teresa told me about uh, mission trips being planned to Rwanda and, and Guatemala and to India uh, and to Mexico. 
uh, a trip to, to Sager Brown. I, I was here for the end of, of Mission Week and got to see the, the youth and the adults and, and the incredible uh, love that was generated and, and the service and, and the growth that took place. We are transformed, friends, when we get involved caring for others, especially those in need. And it's equally important for us to be involved in a small group ministry, to be part of a class. As Sharon has shared with you, we are starting some more classes. I think there were 160 classes that took place in the spring. There's a class for you. There's a place for you to connect. And it's so important at a large church for you to connect because that's the place where you can be held accountable. That's where you can be cared for. That's where you can be prayed for. That's where you can have an opportunity to share it is, what it is that you believe. Dear friends, it, it really doesn't matter what I believe as much as it matters what you believe. And so I want you to find a way to write that down. I want you to find a way to share it with, with those you love, those you know, and then to share it with those you don't know. Because that's how we serve. That's how we live out the mission statement of, of loving God, others, and serving the world. It, it is about our living out our faith and acting on our faith. But we have to know what we believe. I want to close this morning uh, with a, a clip which is really very much about running the race. Uh, after a couple weeks of Democratic and Republican conventions, I'm ready for the Olympics to start. <laughs> there is a, a, an illustration, though, from uh, an Olympics back in, in Barcelona in the 90s. It's the illustration of a runner named Derek Redmond. Uh, he was favored to, to win one of the medals. Uh, he had won his preliminaries and he was in the semifinals and this is what happened to him in his race. Derek Redmond, the best form he's shown since he broke the British record. Cuban Hernandez has got uh, Redmond to aim at and so too in lane number three is Steve Lewis but Redmond's got off very fast indeed so too is Ismail of Qatar. Down the back straight, he's the fractional leader. Fighter of Nigeria has gone very quickly, and Redmond has broken down. He's on the track, kneeling down, and Derek Redmond... Running down the back straight, I heard a funny clap or a pop, and I honestly, for a split second, thought I'd been shot. Uh, and then obviously I realised I've, I've pulled a hamstring. trying to run under the track to stop him. He's going to tell him, Derek, don't. The old man went to put his arms around me and I was just about to try and push him off because I thought it was someone else. I didn't see him. He sort of jogged from behind. And uh, he said, look, you don't need to do this. You can stop now. You haven't got nothing to prove. And I said, oh, I have. Get me back into lane five. I want to finish. When I am on your shoulders you raise me up to more than I can be 
the greatest arena in sport. He's getting the cheer of the games. As I remember reading the Sports Illustrated version of this right after it happened, uh, and what might have been hard to hear a little bit in that dialogue was, was Derek had promised himself and his father that he would finish the race. And when his father made it down from the stands, I just want you to think about that for a minute. In the midst of all the security, this big man was able to run down the stands, get on the track, and to be able to go over to his son, put his armor on him, and pick him up. When his father got to him, he said, Derek, you don't have to finish the race. And he said, oh, Dad, yes, I have to. And the words I read from Jim Redmond were, well, you don't have to finish it alone. Now, I don't know where you are on your journey. I don't know if like Derek and, and like Jim Connor, you found yourself limping a little bit and it's been difficult to continue around the track. But the good news for each and every one of us is that we have a God who will pick us up, a God who has picked us up, the good news for us is we have a cloud of witnesses who are cheering for us, encouraging us, praying for us, also ready to pick us up, and to help us as we, we continue to, to run the race that is set before us. I guess I could probably finish with six other words. On your marks, get set. Just a couple more thoughts. Our call is clear. As we leave this place this morning, we are called to name and to claim our faith. And I think our call should be to find a small group if we're not in one, and to claim a hands-on mission ministry if we haven't done one. Because it is how we live to be faithful, it is how we continue the race in a manner that does change our lives and does change the world. I can't tell you how grateful I am for the opportunity to be part of this family of faith known as First United Methodist Church of Mansfield. I'm grateful for the welcome that you provided me and I look forward to getting to know you better. Remember though, that no matter where you are on this race that we will run together, there's nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. May it be so, amen.